0: Southbridge. It's great to uh, be here with you. What a, what a wonderful way to wrap up the series, by the way, too. Doing Southbridge Serves. Uh, we're talking about the Great Commission and the series we've been doing called Commission. Today's going to be the last one as we wrap it up. We've been going through these five verses over the last four weeks, and today we're going to look at the last part of the Great Commission. The Gospel of Matthew actually doesn't end with a command, it ends with a promise, and that's what we're going to talk about today, and that promise of his presence. I'm going to pray. Um, Just that the Lord would speak to our hearts uh, through the word this morning and that we would end being uh, challenged in the way the Lord would want us to or encouraged or comforted, whatever it is he desires to do in each one of our individual lives. Let me pray. Father, thank you that we get to open up your scriptures. I pray that you would uh, speak your word to me uh, for this service, for those that will hear these words. And I pray, God, that you would clearly make your son Jesus a big deal and that you would put him on display and people would be drawn to him. And I pray, God, that you'd be our ever-present help in times of trouble. For those who are going through difficult circumstances, you'd be ever present to us in changing our minds and our hearts and our lives. In your son Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think that we're pretty confused as a city. One, I'm not sure if we think we live in Seattle or not because of the rain. It uh, seems appropriate that I would probably preach on Noah today based on the weather that we've had this past week. But uh, we are wrapping up our series in Matthew chapter 28. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Matthew chapter 28, going to be looking at verses 16 through 20, really focusing in on the last phrase of verse 20 today. And so whether you have an iPhone or an iPad or whatever it is you use, you can go ahead and get that and get turned there. But uh, thinking about the confusion in our city, before even I knew there was a hurricane coming this past week, I went to Walmart on Tuesday. And I oftentimes see confusing things when I go to Walmart, but I was not ready. Ready for what was about to happen so i don't know if you know what i saw when i walked in there a few of you have seen my facebook page but i walked in and it was christmas the lawn and garden section they were selling every artificial tree that you could imagine and so there they are even with snow on them it was 80 degrees outside and i walked in and this is what i saw now let me remind you i'm not a scrooge or humbug or like upset about christmas i love christmas i'm not like you know some people i know some people that love christmas one of my good friends our shepherding pastor uh pastor jason he starts celebrating in november But I want you to know that when this picture was taken, it was still September, September, October, November, and most normal people, December is when that begins to happen. And so I was thinking about Walmart. I don't know how it works. I don't know how they run their company or any of that stuff. But in my mind, I'm kind of skeptical by nature. In my mind, I don't think that they were sitting in some meeting and said, you know what, let's get them thinking about Jesus more. Let's really focus on the Savior. I think that's why we should start celebrating Christmas in September. I'm pretty confident what actually happened was some sales executive or marketing executive was looking at the sales reports. We sell way more stuff when we're celebrating Christmas. So let's celebrate Christmas way longer, and we'll sell way, way more stuff, is what I think probably happened. Regardless of what Walmart says, whatever executive, whatever meeting, what is Christmas really all about? Jesus, of course. But we're here at the end of the book of Matthew. Do you remember the beginning of the book of Matthew? It's about Jesus coming and being present. He's Emmanuel, God with us. Think about the context of Matthew chapter 1 and what's happening there. There's a young man named Joseph who's pledged to be married to a young woman named Mary, and she finds out she's pregnant. Joseph knows it isn't his. And then God visits him in a dream and says, You name this baby Jesus. He's going to save his people from their sins. And then there's this verse that gets mentioned it's actually from Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 it talks about the Emmanuel God with us The God's going to be present think about how that changed Joseph's life think about the impossible situation that Joseph was in he's an honorable man he planned to put her away quietly to keep his honor and to not shame her because he loved her but he knew it wasn't his and so he couldn't go through with that and then God doesn't just say to him marry this woman even though you know that's not your baby he could do that God doesn't just say, this baby came to her from God. God says, this baby is God. This is God with you. Think about how God's presence radically transforms Joseph's life. And what does God's presence mean to your life? Because we've been going through this passage of scripture at the end of the book of Matthew, where we're given an impossible command. I hope last week you left and felt some tension. Felt, I, can't, I can't do that. Teach them to obey? Like, go to all the nations? Make disciples? You're asking me to be responsible for other people's lives being changed. That is not possible. And into that situation, we get this promise today, and it's a promise of God's presence. And so, what Matthew does, it's called, Bible scholars call it an inclusio, includes everything from the beginning to the end. He frames it. It's kind of like an envelope effect, where at the very beginning, he talks about God's presence, and then the very last part of the Gospel of Matthew, it's about God's presence. The Gospel of Matthew does not end with a command. If I say to most Christians, what does the Gospel of Matthew end with? What's the Greek mission? It's the command to go make disciples. No, that's not the answer. It's a promise. It ends with a promise. It's what I told you to do last week. It's actually impossible. It's not just a heavy burden. It's not just improbable that most of us will go. And Most of us probably felt like, oh, I hope there's some other good Christians in our church that will do that. You can't do it. But God makes the impossible possible by giving us his presence. And so oftentimes this last part of the Great Commission is overlooked or treated like an add-on. It might very well be the most important part of the whole commission. Because this is what makes the whole thing possible. It's God's presence. And so I want you to ask yourself as we look at this passage of scripture today, what does God's presence mean to you? How does it change your life? Matthew chapter 28 is where we're going to be. I'll read the same verses I've read every week. The five verses that I've told you are so central to the agenda of the church, but not just the agenda of the church, but each one of our lives individually as followers of Jesus Christ. There's no mystical experience we need to have to know what God's plan is for our life. He tells us right here, here's the mission. Now, he will speak to us by his spirit to show us how we live it out as we're going. But here's the plan. Here are the tracks to run on. And what we talked about throughout this series is really phrase by phrase through this deal. And so we saw the first part, this promise that Jesus gives, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He's got all the power in heaven and on earth. And we talked about how that is the promise that drives a life-changing church. And then we looked at the command that drives a life-changing church, which is make disciples of all nations. That's the only command on this passage. Two promises. It's packaged by these promises. One command, the command in the middle. We said, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, You love, it's a joy to you to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And So we spent most of our time that week talking about what it means to be a disciple. And then, last week, we talked about how to do that. If that's such a joy, how do we actually make these disciples? And we looked at the participles, going and baptizing and teaching, but it was teaching them to obey. It's impossible. And then today we're going to look at this last promise the promise that makes this whole thing possible. Remember the context here is all of the life and works of Jesus from the miraculous birth in Matthew chapter 1 to his baptism, his temptations, his teaching ministry, his miraculous ministry, his compassion, his being betrayed by one of his own disciples, his, the worst crime that's ever been committed in human history, his murder, which God used for your greatest good. And then his resurrection, you know, the Easter sermon, he has risen. He's risen he was risen. It's about the 10th time he's appeared to his disciples. And it says here in verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So they take the first step of obedience. They're available. Here I am, send me. Then they saw him, and they worshipped him, but some doubted. And remember we talked about this. Doubt's probably not a doubt in the fact that this is Jesus and that Jesus is raised from the dead. One of them has actually put his hands on Jesus. They've seen him eat food, Luke chapter 24. There's probably no doubt that Jesus resurrected. They've seen him maybe as many as ten times. There's no doubt this is Jesus. The doubt's in themselves. Maybe they remember what Jesus said in John chapter 15, no student is greater than his teacher. They hated me, they're going to hate you. And then they just saw what happened to Jesus and they crucified Jesus and they thought, I can't do that. They're doubting. And then Jesus came to them and said, in the midst of their doubt, all authority in heaven and on earth, not just all authority on earth, not just over every circumstance and every relationship and every person and every army and every war and every tragedy and every victory, But everything on earth and everywhere else, all of it has been given to me. Therefore, that hinge word, based on that authority, go and make disciples of all nations our command. How baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them, but not just knowledge. Teaching them to the point where they actually do the things that we say. To obey everything I've commanded you. Had to seem overwhelming. And surely I'm with you always. I am with you always, to the very end of the age, until the mission is completed. Matthew twenty four fourteen, when every tribe and every tongue and every nation, when they've all heard the gospel, and when I come back to the end of the age, until that moment. So this isn't just for the disciples, just in this first century. It's for all of us until the end of the age, until the mission is complete. I'm with you. We've talked about the structure of this passage. Verses sixteen and seventeen give us our context. They go to this mountain. The mountain we don't know which mountain, but it's the mountain Jesus told them to go to. They show up. They're available. Some worship, but like most of us, even in the midst of our worship, there's doubt. And so they're worshiping and doubting. And into that, before they even get the command they're doubting, into that, Jesus gives that promise, all authority, all of it. All inc- there's no authority that he doesn't have. There's nothing he doesn't have authority over. There's no life he doesn't have authority over. There's no situation he doesn't have authority over. No circumstance he doesn't have authority over. All of it's been given to him. Remember, authority is not just power. It's the right to use that power. And he says that hinge word, therefore... Because of all that authority, because of all that power, therefore, go make disciples. Go where? As you're going, as you're living your life, as you go to IBM, as you go to work, as you're raising the kids, as you get up in the morning, as you're walking through the neighborhood, as you're going to the gym, as you're doing whatever you do, go make disciples of everyone you come into contact with. And for some, that'll mean going to Madagascar. For some, that'll mean living in Kerry. And for some, it'll mean going to the person that's from China that lives down the street. For some, it'll mean going to China. But as you're living your life, You go and you make disciples of them. What does it mean to make disciples? You baptize them. You teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. But you don't understand. I'm not that smart. I don't have the resources. I don't know how to do the thing. Wait, I'm with you. I am with you. Same promise at the very beginning. Emmanuel, God with us. Whole book about the life and works of Jesus, and then it ends. Now with his ascension, now with his going, I'm here. I am with you and I will be with you always. What does that mean to you? It should mean at least three things. They're going to be our three points today. It should mean our peace. It should mean our power. And by power, I mean our empowerment, both subjectively, that we have confidence and boldness to obey, but then objectively, that he actually comes through and does the things he tells us to do. And then he's our prize. And I wrestled with whether to say prize for the last word in the outline or to call it pleasure. Uh, I'm talking about the fact that he's our satisfaction, that he's what we get. He's the reward that we get. So that's really the heart part. Why Why would we do any of this stuff? Because we get him. To live as Christ, to die as gain. He satisfies every longing of our soul and he's there for us. So first of all, he's our peace. Jesus' presence means our peace. And you think about the times we live in. We're a little short on peace. I don't just mean Wars and rumors of wars and stuff that's happened with ISIS, or the fear of you know, being hacked by you know, Russian governments or whatever. You know, what's Snowden actually telling them over there? Because I know they listened to that one cell phone call I had. You know, and it was not all that stuff. It's not just that. But in our own scenarios, just basic fear of the unknown. That's what a lot of people are scared of. Somebody told me it was going to go this way and it didn't go that way. And so then how do I know anything? And I don't know. That's right, you don't know anxiety is is almost normal even for believers i've struggled with it in my own life it's a worry it's a lack of faith over what oh it can be almost anything can it you can be worried about what happened in the past what's happening in the present what may happen in the future it could be uh worried that you wouldn't live up to expectations god's expectations some person's expectations some something else worried that you might mess something up fear of just the things you don't know things you can't control there might be financial crisis. We're on. Just think of how abnormal is it to actually have peace. Just watch the news. But then you read the scriptures, and it's told to the believers you're supposed to have. That's natural for you to have peace. It's a fruit of the spirit: peace, patience, kindness. Galatians chapter five, verse twenty-two. We're told in Philippians chapter four, Paul's writing to the Philippian believers there, and he says, "Do not be anxious about anything." That's a command. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, a command, and then there's a promise. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus talks about it. You worry about stuff, and it's going to not make you live any longer. It's not going to make you any taller. Add a cubit to your stature, King James. a second to your life, NIV. But seek first his kingdom. See, the problem is we forget about his presence. Think about where the disciples are at. We already know verse 17 says that they doubt it. Then they're given that promise. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Awesome for you, Jesus. What does that mean to us? Because you're leaving. Think about how things have gone for them. Things have not gone as planned. They left houses and spouses and kids and their dreams and their businesses. They left everything in their bank and it all on Jesus. And what did they expect of Jesus? They thought that Jesus was going to overthrow the government that was oppressing the people of that time that was taxing them beyond what is even thought of reasonable, almost all of their income. Some say 80 to 90% of their income was being taxed, so they were for big government. Some of them left because they were sick of the religious oppression. The Pharisees saying, oh, you got to do all this, and then you do all that, and then, but there's a little bit more, and there's a little bit more, and you can never quite do enough. And then there's the Sadducees, the religious liberals. I don't believe in anything spiritual. They're just kind of out there. It's like spiritual, let's just get together and sing songs and just be nice to each other. And they're tired of all that stuff. And so they go to Jesus, because Jesus is going to change all that stuff, and he's teaching with authority, and he's doing miracles, and they start arguing. Who's going to be number two? Who's going to be number three? This is going to be awesome. And then, even though he told them it would happen, when he dies, they're all shocked. Then he comes back. All right, now he's going to do it. And then he says, and essentially what the Great Commission is is this, I started it, you finish it. Me? <laughs> you remember me? I was the guy in the tax collector's booth. Do you remember me? I was just fishing. <laughs> I'm not qualified. And that's what most of us feel like. And Jesus gives them this promise. I am with you. And he is our peace. Paul says it in Romans chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. How? As you trust in him, so you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is with us. Notice in your verse, go to verse 20 that we're looking at in Matthew chapter 28. If you have your Bibles, if you haven't opened it up yet, go right there and pop it up on the screen if you've got it there. What does the promise actually say? We misquote this promise a lot of the times. We say, I will be with you. It doesn't say, I will be with you. It says, I am with you. He's not talking about after the day of Pentecost. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus' presence in your life. He says, I am with you. When? Always. It's unconditional. He does not say, if you obey the great commission, then I will be with you. If you get holy enough, then I will be present. If you learn enough, if you'll, there's no condition. It doesn't matter if you're Jonah and you're running from God, he's present. Or if you're Paul and you're trying to live out with everything that you have in your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, this commission, he's present. I am with you Always. But the reality is that many of us don't experience that. And that's one of the very reasons why we lack peace. And there's lots of reasons why we don't experience it. I think about, it just even thinking about the end of the, the ministry that Jesus had here on earth and the commissioning of his disciples in John chapter 20 and 21 gives our, his version of what we get in Matthew chapter 28. And he tells some stories that Matthew doesn't tell us. And so what ends up happening is we know that like Peter, take Peter for example, he's oftentimes a spokesperson for the disciples. He's denied Jesus three times. Jesus died. And then he raises But what he's doing is he's hiding in this room with all the other disciples and they're terrified. And the first words that Jesus says when he appears to them in this room behind locked doors, he appears to them, get that for a second, he shows up and he says, peace be with you. And they're terrified. They're scared. And he says, I'm going to send you out just the father sent me out. So you're going to go do the work that I was sent to go do. So I came here. I died on the cross. I did all the work that you couldn't do. Now I'm going to send you out to do stuff you can't do, which is tell the whole world about it. And then Peter gets an experience. He gets restored by Jesus, one of my favorite passages of Scripture in the New Testament. Does he deny Jesus three times? He gets restored, go feed my sheep, go feed my sheep. Then he gets to have this experience with Jesus that almost all of us would say we wish we could have. And I say that we say we wish we could have, but I don't think we really want it. What ends up happening is that Peter gets told God's plan for his life. Now most of us would be like, God, if you just told me your plan, then I'd do it. What we really mean is, God, if you just tell me your plan for my life, then I'll decide whether I think I've got a better one. I think that's what I mean sometimes. And Peter goes on this walk with Jesus after they have breakfast together and he gets restored and he says, I want you to feed my sheep, I want you to feed my And that's kind of gives you the parameters, the general tracks to run on, but then he starts telling Peter details. And you read it in John chapter 21. And he says, When you're young, life was like this, when you get older, it's going to be like this. And he was sharing these things with Peter. And John tells us as he's writing this out, so that Peter would know the kind of death that he was going to die. He was going to die a martyr's death in order to glorify Christ. And he's warned, he's told about it ahead of time. And so, Peter, you're going to be my man. You're going to go preach this message. People are going to get saved. All this is going to happen. And what does Peter do? They're walking along the shore. He's getting told God's plan for his life. And he turns around and he looks at the guy behind him and goes, what about this guy? <laughs> Isn't that so like us? Jesus is standing right there with you, telling you his plan for your life. And you're going, what about John's plan? What is John's plan for his life? I want to see if I like his plan better. Like, what's he thinking in that moment? And I look at it and I think to myself, how often I want to compare myself. What about, what do you do in his life? Maybe I wish you'd do that in my life. Oh, I'm glad you didn't do that. And you start looking at other people's lives. You know what Jesus says? Jesus says to Peter, you got the same problem that you had when you didn't, when you were walking on water and you took your eyes off me. He says, what is it to you if I don't ever let that guy die? It's not what he's saying was going to happen to John. He says, but you follow me. You focus on me. When he tells us here, I'm with you. I'm going to be with you always. Not just from walking along the beach, I'm with you now, ever present, right now, all the time, in your life and in mine too. This wasn't just for the disciples then. So, why do we lack peace? Oftentimes we ignore his presence. We're just unaware that it's there. It's like a few weeks ago, I had this idea. I don't know why. I had a lot of bad ideas. This was one of the bad ideas that I had. Um, I had this bad idea. I was sitting at the table. It kind of happened in the moment, and I said it out loud. That was the problem. I a lot of times verbalize my ideas as they're happening. And I uh, sitting at the table with the whole family, and we're talking, and I'm just thinking about making memories, and I said, we should camp out together. <laughs> no, I am not a camper, okay? I do not like to camp. Going to a hotel is about as close as I plan to get to camping. I'm what uh, Jim Gaffigan calls indoorsy, if you've ever seen Jim Gaffigan before. I-, I don't like that idea, but for some reason I was sitting there with the kids. We were all excited, and I said, we should camp out. We'll camp out in our backyard, which really doesn't make any sense because... There's a house right there. <laughs> you're sleeping outside and you, you like pay the mortgage and there's a bed in there and everything. And you're going outside. And so we decided to do it with our four kids, nine years old to four years old. And we went out in the backyard and we roasted marshmallows and made s'mores and got all excited about getting in the tent. We got in the tent. They were pumped up. Then It's hard to make them go to sleep now, much less when they're in the tent with mom and dad on an air mattress. They're all pumped up. And so I tell them some scary stories, probably scarier than I should have told them. <laughs> Forgive me, Jesus. And uh, parenting mistakes. But anyway, the. Uh, well, a gift to parents, though, is this, the quiet game. Do you know the quiet game? If you don't know the quiet game, we'll do a special seminar out underneath the orange tent today. I'll tell you about the quiet game. So I told the kids, we're going to play the quiet game. They miraculously all get silent. You all win. Like you know, There's no winner. But anyway, they, they get quiet. But as soon as they get quiet, I heard something that I'm pretty confident shouldn't be happening in North Raleigh. It was this noise. that It sounded like an owl had crossbred with a coyote. Kind of like, ow, was just crazy noise. And what I pictured in my mind as soon as I heard it was a predatory monkey that probably had purple on its face and wanted to eat me at that moment. I was pretty, pretty sure. And I heard it multiple times throughout because I didn't sleep throughout the rest of the night. And you know what's interesting? The next night I didn't hear it at all. The next night I was in my house. The house has walls and a door. And sometimes I watch TV and it's got a real comfortable bed. <laughs> but I know that it's still out there. It's always out there. It was out there before that, and it's out there still. But I'm not aware of its presence because there are barriers or distractions or comforts. You probably can make the connection. Jesus is here, but some of us, it's like there's something blocking, or like we're just not aware. And maybe for some of us, it's our comforts and light. We're just so, we're so consumed with getting all the comforts around us that we ignore the presence of Jesus. For some of us, it's sin. That's an obvious one, sin. Even though you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are in the family, you are a child of God, you have spent eternity with him, but you're not experiencing his presence here and now because you've got broken fellowship with him. It might be small sin, hidden stuff just below the surface, stuff you're ignoring, or it might be big sin that you're aware of. Maybe you're trying to hide it from everybody else. That's why you don't experience his presence. I was reading this week about the revival that took place at Asbury College in 1970. You can Google that, 1970 revival at Asbury College. What ended up happening, they spent 185 straight hours having chapel services. And God did an amazing work. Students were converted. Students were commissioned. uh, Relationships from broken homes were reconciled. uh, Addictions were being broken. God was doing an amazing work. And then what happened was those students went out and started to share testimonies at local churches. They went to one church in Anderson, Indiana, and just started to share, this is what God did, and this is how God worked, and started confessing their sins to this, group, this church, and then the altar got flooded with people, and they had 50 nights in a row at this church of services, where people were coming from different denominations, different backgrounds, different races, all kinds of, and God was doing a work, reconciling relationships, and breaking addictions, and saving people, and commissioning people, and doing, doing this work, and started to spread. It all started when one faculty member got up at Asbury College, and confessed sin to the student body and then invited other people to confess sin. Let me tell you something. God was present before that faculty member confessed that sin. It's not that they had this encounter with Jesus. Like Jesus showed up. Sometimes we use that kind of language. He was, just, he was there and he, he hadn't been there before. But now no, he was there the whole time. I am with you always. But you just, it's like you open the curtain. It's like you... The barrier got dealt with. Now, Jesus tore down the barrier between us and God when he died on the Ephesians chapter 2, talks about that, when he died on the cross. But what ends up happening is we break our fellowship with God, with our sin. And he says, if, you're, if you confess your sin, let's say what God says about it. It's breaking a relationship that's coming between us. See it for what it is. No, I just made a mistake. I just messed up. No, it's, you're, I'm valuing this over our relationship. Confess your sin, that he is faithful, and that He's just, and he will cleanse you of that sin. Some of you need to be cleansed. Confess your sin to him. Repent. Turn from that sin. Turn to him. You wonder why you lack peace. What about him? Do you have him? Now some people you don't sense God's presence. It's not because of sin in your life. Sometimes it's God's not allowing you to sense his presence because he wants you to go deeper and closer to him. So you walk through these dark times in life and he's drawing you closer and closer to him. He's there the whole time but he wants you to press into him. He wants you to come after him. Those who seek me will find me. Draw near, I'm, he, he's never going anywhere. You draw near to me, you will find me. Those who seek me with all your heart, he wants all your heart. For some people, we don't experience his presence. It's not because of sin. It's not because he's drawn us closer to him. We're distracted. We're distracted by all kinds of things. Some people are distracted by their religion. You can be distracted by coming to church all the time, and going to Bible study all the time, and learning all kinds of stuff about God and trying to do all the nice things for God. And Jesus says to the Pharisees in the, in the Gospels, John chapter 5, verse 39, you, you think that you you want eternal life and you think that you have by searching the scriptures. They testify about me and you're missing me is what he's telling them. You're learning all the verses, you know all the stuff, but you're you don't get it. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, NIV. Let me read you what the message says. The message is more of a paraphrase, but I love the very simple words it uses for these verses. You have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there. But you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me, the person of Jesus. Here I am, standing right before you, and you aren't willing to receive from me the life you say you want. I have what you want, and I am here and those scriptures should be pointing you to me, but somehow you're, with all your, you're so busy with your religion, you're missing the point. And Jesus is the point. And Jesus is the peace. And it's his presence, he promises, that brings the peace. For some of us, we're just busy. Always got the TV on, always got the radio on, always got something on your to-do list that needs to be checked off. There's constantly things that are happening from the moment you get out of bed to the moment you put yourself back to sleep. And it's just always happening can you just even think about what it might be like to stop for a little bit? To not turn your radio on in the car on the way to work. In your office, just to stop. Get up a couple minutes before everybody else. I'm just here. That's the scripture I read this week. Revelation chapter 8 and verse 1 talks about everything stood still in heaven. The context, I think, goes back to about chapter 6. John's receiving a vision of heaven and what heaven's like. And he's there and he becomes overwhelmed because there are these seals that can't be opened by Anybody. And so he starts weeping because this must be important and no one's worthy to open them. And then he's told, no, no, don't, don't weep because there's one who's worthy. He's not human though. It's the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. It's the one who gave his life on the cross. It's the lion of Judah, the lamb who was slain. And then Jesus shows up and starts opening the seals. In chapter 7, right before what we read in chapter 8, verse 1, what happens is that John tells us there are so many people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. There's thousands upon thousands, so many you can't count them, and they're worshiping God, and they're saying salvation belongs to our God and the Lamb who is slain, the one who sits on the throne. And so that's what happens. And then Revelation chapter 8 is like it'll shock your system. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. So imagine the largest stadium you've ever been in, whether it was like a, a U2 concert or you know, a football game or something, the biggest stadium you've ever been in, and all the people are they're making a big deal about Jesus. They're singing, they're crying out, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. He is the Lamb who was slain. He is the Lion, the Lion of Judah. And then something we know little about happens for 30 straight minutes. What would it be like for you just to stop and not pray, like I'm not saying, God, pray for the missionaries and pray for the person who hurt their foot and God help that and fix that. But just, I'm here. Are you here, God? And just stop. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 16, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way as he's present with you. His presence means our peace, but it doesn't just mean our peace. His presence also means our power. Jesus' presence means our power. In verse 17, when they doubt, that's before they've even been given this impossible command. And so they're doubting in this passage. They're doubting themselves. They're doubting that they can do this. They're doubting they can do anything. And so Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's awesome for you, Jesus, but you're sending us out. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm with you. Just like I was with you when I told you to feed the 5,000, that was impossible. You had a little kid's lunch, 5,000 people, and you're telling me to send them away. And I said, you go feed them. And he has the disciples feed them. But how does it happen? Because Jesus is the one that multiplies the bread. Jesus is the one who does the impossible stuff, but he does it through his disciples. And he still does that through us. And so he gives us this impossible command. I want you to teach them to obey. can't even get my kids to obey. You're supposed to get other adults to obey. You can't force them. You can't make them obey. It's a place where you have to depend upon him. If you are going to obey this command, you have to walk by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. You have to depend upon him. I hope last week there was tension. When he left, if you really were serious about, how do I do, I can't do this. That's right. And that's where he has the disciples at. They were doubting themselves before he even gave the command. Then he throws an impossible command on them. But he doesn't leave them there. And then he gives them this promise. I'm there. See, it's in the midst of those impossible circumstances that oftentimes when we sense the presence of God and we see the presence of God, it's both subjective, we grow in confidence, we grow in boldness, and it's also objective. He comes through and then does stuff. It's like the psalmist says in Psalm twenty-three, six: Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. That doesn't make any sense. Why wouldn't you? For you are with me. It's because of your presence. How many people get in the valley of the shadow of death? and they fear evil and some even curse God. Never take a stand for Christ and your friends desert you and then do you curse God in that? We read a convicting question by John Piper this week. He said this. Says when you're deserted by close friends, do you cry out against God? And then he asks the follow-up question, is your God really the people in your life? Are you afraid to step out by faith because it might cost you your finances? Well, what if you lose your finances? Are you afraid to step out by God because it might mean some circumstances? Maybe what that reveals is actually what the God is in your life. So if you curse God because your friends are gone, then guess what your God was? It's not God. It was your friends. It's dealing with the idols in your heart, and your disobedience. But those that are walking by obedience... They will step out by faith in him, that when the difficult times come, when the valley actually takes place, they actually sense his presence. Read people who live by faith. Read people that go through difficult circumstances. You'll find a theme in their story. I was reading this week, I read about a guy that was in the, the 9-11 in the towers, and he was coming down the steps, and he talked about how God was ever present in that moment. What a Talk about the valley of the shadow of death. I read about a woman who was in the Holocaust, a Jewish woman, who was angry and bitter, her... Dad killed, a terrible situation, and then she came to Christ. And she talked about sensing the presence of Jesus in those terrible moments. The Chilean miners, do you remember them from 2010? There were 33 guys that were 2,300 feet below the earth for 69 days, over two months, underground, trapped. And if you listen to their stories, it's repeated stories of God showing up and doing things that only God could have done in possible situations there. And they talk about experiencing God's presence in that. It's the people of faith when they're in those valleys. and then This promise becomes real because God empowers them. It's like John Patton a missionary of the late 1800s, early 1900s, the New Hebrides Islands. He went there to reach these savages. In his autobiography, he writes about a night that he spent in a tree hiding from the savages, hundreds of them that were hunting him. You could hear the muskets being shot. They were coming, looking to kill his life, to take his life. And he says there was never a time when this promise, Matthew 28, the last part of verse 20, became more real to him. And then 40 years after it happened, he's writing his life story. He says he, long, if he, could go, he would long to go back to that moment. Now, if I'm writing my life story and I'm thinking about what's happening, I'm probably not thinking, you know, if there's a moment I could relive, it's when about a hundred savage people wanted to kill me. That doesn't even make sense. That's a piece that surpasses understanding that's an empowerment that doesn't make sense based on these circumstances that's god showing up when we're doing what he's called us to do which we see with john Patton, we see with paul remember we went through the book of acts and there's this pattern paul goes into a town preaches the gospel some people get saved then they get mad at him they want to kill him some of them stone all kinds of bad things happen and he wants to leave which is natural in Corinth, what ends up happening in Acts chapter 18, is Paul comes in, he preaches the gospel, the Jews reject him, so he's going to go to the Gentiles, but they're not responding the way that he would like them to respond. And so what it says in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent. Why? For I am with you. I'm here, and i got a plan for you in this place, and there's a lot of people for you to reach. You stay here, and I am with you. He promises the disciples in this passage, I am with you. He doesn't say you won't get your head cut off. He doesn't say you won't be crucified upside down. He doesn't say you won't be boiled alive, which is what happens to several of them. But in those moments, I'm there. I'm with you. You go to the Old Testament, you see our heroes of the faith. They get commissioned, and what is the promise that goes with it? It's this. Exodus chapter 3, Moses saying, I can't do this. I'm a murderer. <laughs> You've got to find somebody more holy than me. And I can't speak. And you want me to go speak before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world? That can't happen. Exodus chapter 3, Moses said, who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And what, is, what does God say? Oh, you're, a good, you're better than you think. Let me pump up your self-esteem. No, I'll be with you. You really can't do it, Moses. But I'm going to do it. I'll be with you. What I want you to do is walk by faith. You go to other parts of the Old Testament, Judges, Judges chapter 6, you got Gideon. Gideon is the least, his army is the smallest, and the weakest, and then God says, let's make it a little bit smaller. What does Gideon say? Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? You can't, is the answer. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Yeah, you don't have a shot. Lord answered, I'll be with you. I got this. Now, just as an analogy, some of you in here are good at basketball. A few of you, I know, even played basketball in college, or you played in high school, or you think you're really good, whatever. You're still better than me. If you came up to me after the service today and said, hey, I'll challenge you some high-stakes thing to a pickup basketball game, I would probably, nah, I can't, I'm not that good. I, I don't have a jumper, I'm not very tall. Like, all the things are me. I can't do it. But if you said it'll be two-on-two, two, and I get LeBron, and you got some other person at our church, I'm feeling pretty good. Some of you are a lot stronger than me. you got biceps just popping out of everywhere. I know some of you are soldiers. Some of you have done some crazy stuff. Some of you are fighters, all that kind of thing. If you challenge me to a fight, I'm, uh, I'm good. <laughs> I don't think so. But if I can have some professional MMA guy in his tag team and I never have to get in, sounds great. Let's do it. Boxing, I get Mike Tyson. Let's go. I feel good. I don't feel very good by myself. Some of you are really smart. You challenge me to the quiz bowl. We go, in. I'm not feeling real great about this option, but if I get some PhD just from one of the schools around here, that well, let's do this. You got this one, right? Jesus is saying, you, the one who has all authority and all power and has the right to use all that power in heaven and on earth, I'm with you. The creator and redeemer of your soul, I'm with you. Jeremiah, you'll hear Jeremiah talked about because of the Planned Parenthood videos that are just horrendous that are taking place right now. But people will quote Jeremiah chapter one. I knew you in the womb. The rest of the context for what's happening there, God does. It is sanctity of life in the womb. That is life. That is a child. And he speaks to Jeremiah, a very young man. And he says, I'm a child. I can't go do this. You want me to go and preach to people that they've been given false peace? They've been giving false peace. So you can have peace. It's not real peace because it's not based on content. It's not based on the presence of Christ. It's based on some false understanding of your circumstances, false promises. And and Jeremiah has to go and say, hey, your prophets are preaching peace. You don't have peace. Jeremiah said, I can't do that. The Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. How could I do that? Don't be afraid. I'm with you. You keep seeing this promise. Here's, the, here's how you do it because you'll be empowered by me. You should have boldness and courage like the disciples did in Acts. We have to speak about Jesus. You can kill us. We're going to speak about Jesus. He's with us because you know what mentality they had? Philippians chapter one. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. You kill me, I get to be with him. It's a win-win. I can't lose actually because Jesus is my life. And think about these disciples and the situation that they're in. So Jesus comes to them, and they thought that he was going to be the king. They thought that he was going to rule. Then he dies. Terrible. Then he raises. Awesome. Now I'm leaving again. No, not cool. But I'm with you. And so I'm not talking about LeBron James. I'm not talking about Mike Tyson. Think about what would pop into their heads. I was telling my daughter a story for bedtime the other night. Mark chapter 4 story. I said, it's raining. It's raining like it's been raining here in Raleigh. Whoa, that's a lot of rain. Sometimes I think I miss these stories because I know them so well. And she gets so enthralled with this. And, and I said, there's this boat, and Jesus is sleeping. And there's a bunch of fishermen, guys that are professional you know, seamen. And they're crying like little kids. They are? She said, yes. It's like a hurricane. Like Joyakim or Hoyakim, or whatever you say. His name. This is crashing down a boat. And there, she's like into it. And I said, then I wake Jesus up. And Jesus says, calm down, wind. Calm down, waves. And it's glassy smooth. And she went, whoa. And then she said, can he really do that? Oh, yeah. These guys were there when that happened. You know what they said? Mark chapter 4, verse 41. They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. All authority in heaven and under earth. What went into their mind when he said that statement? The guy who forgave sins, but then they didn't think he could forgive sins, so he said, well, get up and walk. To the guy who can't walk, he's showing he's got the authority, the power to forgive sins. The guy who shows up at Mary and Martha's house when their brother Lazarus has died, he's been dead for four days. Four days. Wasn't sleeping. He'd been in the tomb for four days, starting to stink. They come out and they say, well, have you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe in life? Yet yeah, I am the resurrection. I am what We believe that it'll happen someday. He had told his disciples, I'm glad this happened so that God could be glorified. And he sees them weeping and then he comes to the tomb. He says, He doesn't do a magic spell. No incantations. No hocus pocus. Just says some words. Lazarus, come out. He has to say Lazarus so all the dead bodies don't come walking out. (laughs) Lazarus, come out. After being in the tomb for four days, this guy comes walking out. And the disciples saw him do that, just his words. The same guy who had said about a chapter earlier, no one takes my life, I lay it down so that it may be taken back up again. He's now standing there as the resurrected Christ and has told them I have all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me and I'm going with you. Guess what? You got this. You can do this. And you keep doing it until the mission is complete, Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, then the end will come. Until the end of the age. I'm with you, and I'm with you always. And it's not based on your obedience. It's not based on what you do. It's not based on anything like that. I am here, and I am your power, and I will go with you. And the things you can't do, you're probably right. But I can, and I'm here. So step on and do them, and you'll see me and experience And there's a mystical element to this where you experience him in a way you've never experienced him before. But you've got to walk by faith. You can do it. Because he's with you. he is our power. And he's also our prize. Jesus' presence means our prize. And by prize, I mean that he's everything in life that you're actually looking for. He's our reward. He's our pleasure. He is the contentment of life. He's, he's look through the scriptures. We just got to ask, do we really believe what he says? He says, people are hungry. He says, I am the bread of life. They've come to him because they want a free meal. He's saying, I'm the bread of life. Eat of me. They're thinking, he's talking about cannibalism. They don't understand. He's saying, every longing of your heart and your soul Believe upon me, and I will fulfill that. I am the water. You're coming for water? I'm the living water. You'll never thirst again. I am the only thing that can satisfy you. He says in John chapter 14, verse 6, the disciples are confused. He's talking about leaving. He's talking about his death. And he says, I am the way, the truth. They said, We want to go where you're going. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You can't get to heaven except for through Jesus. And he breaks down those three things: the way, the truth, the life. We talk a lot about the way as a church. I'll quote that verse and then we'll talk about how there's no way to heaven except for through Jesus. It's because of his death, because of his resurrection. He provided the way. It was an irreconcilable difference, the fact that God was holy and we were sinful. And when he came to be Emmanuel, God with us, lived a perfect life and died for us, he created a way. Not one of many ways. It's the only one. But it's a way. At least there's a way. He says, I'm the way. But he doesn't just say he's the way. He says he's the truth. We talk about that. Truth. He embodies truth. He speaks truth. But what about the last one? We don't talk a lot about the last one. He's the life. Not just he can give life. He is life. Not just I can provide for you a way of good life. I can fulfill your dreams and all your wants. I am the things that you're longing for. I am life. That's why the psalmist cries out, Psalm 63. You see the psalms, the psalm is so passionate. This is heart stuff that we're talking about here. This isn't just mine. This isn't just you need to think about this. This is whether it's in your heart or not, Is the easier prize. The psalmist cries out, Psalm 63. Oh God, you're my God, personal, in a dry and weary land. When you're on the desert, in a dry and weary land, because this is written by David, when he's fleeing from Absalom, you want water. And he says, in a dry and weary land, my soul longs for you. And then he talks about experiencing his presence. I've seen you in the sanctuary. I've beheld your power. I beheld your glory. Your love is better than life. It's like in the Philippians. For me to live as Christ. To die as king. If I die, I'm with you. And if I live, it's for you. Because you are life. Psalm 37. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. When we talk about this passage, we talk about God's will. We talk about you want to, God will tell you what he wants you for your life. And you know what the question is? We skip the first part. Is he your delight? Because he can't be your delight if you don't find him delightful. And so you'll go for other things. Whatever those idols are. Friends, money, success, reputation, kids. Whatever the thing is. But if you delight yourself in Him, then guess what? The only thing left to do is whatever He wants done. Because you got Him. And The more you walk with Him, the more you experience Him. And so to live then is Christ and to die then is gain. And He's with you through the whole thing. I was at a funeral recently and uh, the guy who was leading the graveside service was a chaplain for a police department. and He was telling us how he would do all kinds of funerals. Oftentimes he wasn't the pastor of the people that he was doing the funeral for. They'd be drug dealers and gang members and all kinds of folks that oftentimes the police department would call him to come and do the funeral, the graveside, and um, the reason was because there was no representation of God in their family. And so he said no matter who it was, no matter how bad the guy was, at least mom would show up. There'd always be somebody that would come. And he, he shared with us how he always would stay afterwards, sometimes as long as a half hour, just in case somebody decides to come back, he wants there to be a representation of God, somebody there that would represent the Lord to them. And he told a story about how one time he was at a funeral and the family was going back to their car and a little kid came running back, a three year old. And the three year old, it was his dad, even though he was a drug dealer. Bad guy, had died in a police situation. It didn't go well. But it was still that kid's dad. So this three-year-old comes running back to the casket, knocks on the casket, and says, Dad, come out of the box, come home now. Like, that's over. Now that's over, now you, you come back with us. But death is so final. What's happening in this passage is probably the last thing the disciples want to happen, that Jesus is going to leave. But it's the way that he's going to fulfill this. The promise to be able to be with us. See, it's not final for Jesus. He dies, but he's still with us. An ever-present help in our troubles. Here, with us, whether we disobey this command or obey this command, empowering us to make this happen. So what does his presence mean to you? Is it your peace? Is it your power, your empowerment? Is it your prize? What happens at Christmas? What are we talking about? Because what Matthew talks about here at the end is saying, God is with you. So what does that mean to you? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are with us. I pray for those who lack peace. I pray that you would guard their hearts and their minds and your son Jesus. I pray they would cast their cares upon you because you care for them. I pray they would stop being anxious about circumstances and they use every circumstance that as they're going to demonstrate your son Jesus that they would see the difficulties in life as an opportunity than to demonstrate your glory. Trust in you that we would trust in you, that you would manifest, you would demonstrate your presence to us, that as we go on with an impossible command, that we'd experience your presence in a way we never have before. Thank you for being peace. Will you be our peace? Thank you for being our power. Will you empower us? Thank you for being our prize. Will you bring us the satisfaction that we long for in our souls? And I pray if there are any here that don't know you, that have thought that the church is just some religious thing to do, or Whatever they place their faith in your son Jesus right now and ask Jesus to be their Savior. I pray for those who need to deal with sin. They would confess their sin. I pray for those who need to experience your empowerment because you've got a step of faith for them to take and they can't do it on their own that you would empower them. And for some that means telling a coworker about Jesus. For some that means going overseas. And for some that means some act of obedience that they've been neglecting. I pray that you do it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.